0: Voices calling for American schools to reopen for in-person instruction have multiplied in recent weeks. President Biden's new director for the Center for Disease Control, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, has said that school settings do not result in rapid spread of COVID-19 when mitigation measures are followed and emphasize that the vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely reopening schools. Yet despite growing consensus on the safety of in-person instruction, as well as mounting evidence of the emotional, educational, and economic harms of school closures. The latest data show that 36% of American students remain fully remote, with another 25% in-person only part-time. What's behind those numbers, and what will it take for them to change? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Darrell Bradford, executive vice president of 50CAN. He's also the author of the new article, a Rolling National teacher Strike is Why Schools Are Closed, available now at educationnext.org. Darrell, welcome back to the Ednext Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Marty. I really appreciate it. So as the headline suggests, your article argues that what we're experiencing at the moment is effectively a rolling national teacher strike. Now, of course, most teachers are still showing up for work, even if it's often in a remote setting. And most schools in some states have been operating largely in-person since the start of the school year. So what exactly do you mean by using that term?
1: First of all, I want to commend all the teachers who are trying their best out there to uh, provide reasonable or high-quality in-person instruction for kids across the country. Um, I've been pretty circumspect about Um, the public health concerns, and I wrote about this last year, so so I get that, and certainly we've had um, uh, governors and other elected officials on the six o'clock news um, communicating how serious this is to everyone, and in some places, I I would just say scaring everybody into believing how serious this is, Um, but I think we also know that the implementation of remote learning has been spotty across the country, Um, and the current all remote or significantly remote status has the effect of denying an in-person option to kids who actually want one. Um, and to me, if if you alter the terms of the deal to take in-person off of the table, to me, to me, that is the equivalent of a strike. Uh, but because n- normally kids would be going to school in person, now parents are not getting what, 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 what they want. Um, and in my estimation, just kind of like looking back, this is this is not. Um, a one-off, right? This is not something that is happening just right now. Uh, the current state of affairs is actually the culmination of a lot of teacher union advocacy that started in twenty eighteen. Um, I would I would argue this is the sort of worst form of it. There's the most at stake with this set of decisions, but it doesn't make sense to look at it only as something that is happening because of COVID.
0: And that points to the second and more interesting, in my view, point that your article makes, which is that. What's happening now? We shouldn't think of it as the start of a period of labor strife brought on by the COVID crisis, but rather the end stage of a much longer period of union activism. Can you remind us of that broader context?
1: Yeah, this is the, the horrible thing about being alive is that, like, over time you get to add things up in a, in a narrative, you know. And so I don't want to um, I don't, I don't want to be flip about it, but if you if you think about twenty eighteen you know, what happened? We saw these tremendous teacher, you know, sort of actions, like you could call them strikes or sick outs, or like they took all sorts of of forms, but they all had the effect of basically shutting school down for for hundreds of thousands of kids, uh, you know, across the country. And uh, so that was, you know, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Arizona, obviously, Um, and uh, I can't remember what the the other state was in there. West Virginia, West Virginia, West Virginia, right? All, 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 all red states, sort of at the front. And so, um, uh, originally, people were like, "Well, this must just be like a red state phenomenon." Certainly, there were strong arguments to be made about teacher pay in some in in some of those states, that you know, maybe Oklahoma um, in particular, but. Uh, when you look at those things, and then you fast forward a year and you see the strikes that happened in Chicago and LA, it starts to look a little more systematic. Um, And in particular, the way the press covered these things, it it made the actions that, you know, which had the effect of denying school to kids look heroic, right? This was, you know, obviously labor was sort of more ascendant in the public mind at that point, and uh, the teachers union chief, chief among them. To me, what really crystallized it was the the, the MOU that the Los Angeles Teachers Union signed with the district, right when um, all schools were starting to go or most schools were going remote in in March. And it did two very specific things. One was that it made recording the lessons um, optional, which was a job protection for the teacher. Um, The other was that it capped the amount of time that a teacher had to prep or teach during a given week, which basically drove up the price. And I was like, "This is this is pure like ruthless uh, sort of like a, like union economics right now." I'm gonna I'm gonna charge you more for labor, and I'm gonna make it harder for you to switch up the labor I provide. And, and that to me was kind of like a signal of of what was to come.
0: One of the reasons I'm sympathetic with the argument you're putting forward that this is the extension of that activism dating back to 2018 is that in our polling data that we gather through Education Next on an annual basis, we saw that the unions fared pretty well in the course of that period of increasing activism. Perceptions of unions' influence on public education uh, turned more favorable than they had been. Support for increasing teacher pay uh, rose among the public as a whole. And so you can imagine unions looking at what's happening uh, and seeing that that strategy of Increased activism has succeeded to some extent, that they were effectively winning those strikes, not just in terms of the specific concessions uh, that were made by policymakers, which often were significant, but also within the court of public opinion. And so uh, they uh, would think that maybe we're in a position to uh, take a pro- stronger position than had been the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's interesting too, like like state politics, I think, play, play a role in this too. I don't, I don't think this is specifically a red state, blue state um, uh, uh, phenomena, but I do think that the teachers unions have more leverage either in blue states or in cities, right? And, and when I highlight blue states, I mean in particular places where those that polling is probably through the roof. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm like a, 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 a taxpaying resident of, of Jersey City. Um, so I'm gonna, w- where we're closed, I'm going to pick on uh, uh, Montclair, uh, Montclair, New Jersey, which is a, a bastion of public school activism and where the uh, the, the teacher unions, um, the Montclair Association, uh, Education Education Association, in particular, are, are valorized. They're at the top of the food chain, you know. Um, and so in that instance, I think you see that because the the politics of these like small bergs are sort of so progressive and so aligned with traditional unionism, the unions that have been able to steamroll everybody who, who wants an in-person option. The, the less sort of um, benign t- version of that is that you're in New York City, where 15% of the kids are are white. And almost everybody else is minority, and no one is going anywhere. And because of such, you know, because it's a highly urban district and an expensive district, the unions have tremendous political leverage. And they too have also been able to keep schools closed or sporadically
0: open as a result. Let's turn to the national political context. As you acknowledged earlier, we have a new Democratic president who arguably owes his electoral victory to union support, certainly has strong relationships with the teachers unions at the national level. He also proposed in the course of his campaign, a major increase in federal funding for K-12 schools. How is that influencing what's happening around the country right now?
1: Yeah, I would say, how is it not influencing it? Uh, You know, to to me, it is, you know, it's like I'm I'm a bad poker player because I would show you all my cards up front, and and to me, all of the cards are on the table uh, in terms of what what would happen if the kind of like the AFT and the, and the NEA's uh, funding wish list were implemented by by this president, right? And uh, you can you can see it again. As the creature as the offspring of the of the, the strikes in Chicago and Los Angeles, because Democratic presidential candidates picked up increasing teacher pay by increasing federal funding for states as a result of that, like, you know, as a consequence of that labor action. And so the end game here is massively increase federal funding to to states, which will absolutely go to teacher pay. Right. So so this is like a generational, like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get um uh local increases, which would be politically harder to do on Uncle Sam's credit card. Now, naively, I think state governments aren't looking closely enough at this because this will also have the effect of increasing pension costs, right? And healthcare costs and all of these other coincident costs that are like the remora on the shark of, of teacher pay. So I so I would argue that they all re- really need to, to focus on that too. But but the the opportunity, I think, right to, to get massive amounts of teacher pay on the uh, the federal balance sheet is so powerful that you actually have to get it before you can let everybody go back to school, and to me that that is what is going on right now, right? The the political opportunity is is so is so sweet that we're at the at the risk of being sort of uh, 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 using uh, the wrong word, being flip about it that to let kids go back to school would lose the leverage that the current moment has created.
0: So let's close then by talking about where we're headed, perhaps where we should be headed. Um, What is the right path forward for American schools right now?
1: Yeah, so, so let, me, let me give you some, some agony and some ecstasy on that. So, um, you know, Al, like my position and like uh, uh, Mark Porter-McGee is our CEO, and I suspect most of, most of our EDs feel about this. We wrote a piece about this last, last year called Fund Everything. Um, our position is that like, look, uh, teacher, teachers have legitimate health concerns and that's fine. Um, But those concerns are co-equal with the concerns of parents and kids who want an in-person option. And right now, um, the way those concerns are being handled is that teacher concerns are the only concerns and until teachers feel uh feel safe, nobody gets an in-person option. And we we don't agree with that. And so uh if you want an in-person option, and you can't get one, we think you should be able to get the money and go get one. And certainly Catholic schools have figured this out, broken schools have figured this out. It's amazing what masks and market pressure can do uh when you're trying to open schools, you know. So that's the first thing. Um the, that's the ecstasy. The agony thing, which I think is sort of more frustrating, is that I, I would just I think all policymakers who deal with schools and who finance schools need to be thinking about um, a fall where, you know, let's say we're trying to genuinely come back more than one one day in person uh, a week. Um, And that will include a workforce that has taught from home for a year now. And I suspect a lot of those those folks are gonna be like, hey, um, I like teaching from home. If you want me back in person five days a week, it's gonna cost more. Or if you want to provide five days a week, you're going to need to hire somebody else to pick up the other two or three days, because I don't want to be there the whole time. And both of these things will have the, like, if you're a union leader, you will love them both, because they will both result in higher teacher pay or higher headcount of teacher, which means more money for you. It's, it's very cynical, but, like, if you play it out this way, it feels really obvious. And, like, low-income kids in particular are the ones who are going to, be, who have been and Will continue to be most damaged by this uh, this situation.
0: So, should Congress make COVID relief funding for K twelve schools conditional on offering all students an in person option?
1: Well, it's a it's a very good question. I think they would be more inclined to do it now because the politics of this have changed. It is no longer a situation where you know the most divisive president in the history of history is calling for reopening. Um, you know the the New York Times and and the Atlantic and a whole bunch of at CNN and a whole bunch of uh, media outlets that are not right leaning um, have are sort of leaning into this this problem now. So I think the political incentives are, are very are very different. Well, what I would just say is that. Uh, In in the rest of my life, I'm absolutely for flexible funding and and believe in states and people and individual schools like to sort out their own local context. I do think that whatever COVID aid gets sent to states has to be organized in a way that it actually deals with the challenges of reopening. Um, if that means setting up a parallel tutoring program or a permanent virtual option or cleaning or any of these other things, then like, yes. For this money to just fall right to the bottom line of like bus drivers who are driving around empty buses, right, or or teachers who will get, you know, significant pay increases, but don't want to come back, I, I think that is deeply problematic, both for, you know, sort of local economies, it's very problematic for state school systems. And again, for parents and kids, it is,
0: deeply troublesome. My guest today has been Darrell Bradford, Executive Vice President of 50 Can and author of A Rolling National Teacher Strike is Why Schools Are Closed, available now at educationnext.org. Darrell, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you very much for having
1: me. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.